Native people saw the creature hanging from his hand. They said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune to come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island called Publius, who received us and entertained us with hospitality, hospitality for three days. <clears throat> it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and put hands on him and healed him. And when he... And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. The word of the Lord. I know that if I were Luke, then Acts would abruptly end with verse 3, because I would be long gone. I hate snakes. Last week, Ryan's phobia was being adrift at sea which is in my top three, but number one is this week, being bitten by a snake. And so, quick point of application this morning is that if I'm ever with you in the event that you get bit by a snake, good luck. I will be of zero help to you. I love you. I will pray for you as I run. Today, we start Acts 28. We're in the final chapter. We'll be in the first half this week, and we'll end it next week. We have a snake bite story this morning. On the surface, it seems, or on the surface, it's obviously miraculous. But we might better understand the purpose of this snake bite when we take the whole story, the whole summation of the story of Acts into view. Remember, like Ryan asked last week, what's the score thus far? Is the gospel really victorious? Because after all, isn't that why Luke is writing Acts to show that the gospel has gone out and it is victorious? But again, it does not seem that way when you're all-star. Your poster child, your golden boy, Paul, is in chains and marooned and shipwrecked on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. And then on top of that, when it's cold and he's wet and just trying to get warm by a fire, a snake jumps out of the wood that he's carrying and a viper bites him on the hand. Is the gospel really victorious? But on the other hand, nothing happens. There's no swelling. There's no reaction. There's no effect. Paul just simply shakes it off into the fire. And so what's the significance of this snakebite story? And I think it's important because Luke decides to effectively end the book of Acts with this story. So what is the significance of it and what does it offer to us? Well, I think there's two things in this snakebite. First is that it's a sign of God's presence with Paul. Malta is not a detour. The shipwreck was not a surprise. God is not waiting on a dock in Rome, waiting and wondering when Paul is going to arrive. The snake bite represents that despite appearances, God is with Paul and everything is going exactly how he wants it to go because he is the sovereign storyteller. God is with Paul. Secondly, it's one last display in the final moments of Acts of what the entire book is about. The snake bite is symbolic in that it represents something more than just the event itself. It's symbolic and representative of the very gospel itself. 
Christ was victorious over the serpent, over Satan, sin, and death. And in the Great Commission, Jesus calls us to participate in that victory through the proclamation of the gospel and to experience and share in that victory by preaching the gospel to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And this snake bite is a picture of what the book of Acts is about. We are the people that share in the victory of the resurrected Christ. And it's also representative that what Jesus said was going to happen has happened. In Luke 10, he says, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And he didn't just say that to the disciples. He said that to 72 people. And then he says in the Great Commission to 300, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. There is nothing that will stop my purposes. Go and share in my victory. And this is what Acts has been telling us all along, that we were meant to be a people of immense power, tremendous power, that share in the victory of Christ because the same spirit that raised him from the dead dwells in us and invites us to participate in something of which there are no obstacles, there are no challenges, and there are no enemies that could overcome it. You are in the middle of a fight in which, in the end, there's no venom that will have any effect over Christ's purposes. We are meant to be a people of power. The problem is the church doesn't talk that way anymore. The church has forgotten that we are meant to be a people of power. Honestly, we're more concerned about elections than the elect. We're more concerned about being on the defensive rather than on the offensive. We're more worried about doing things that Christ never really called us to do instead of focusing on the one thing that he did call us to do. And if we do talk about power, it's usually people that are on late-night television that we shouldn't even be watching in the first place. And yet the book of Acts says that's exactly who we are. There doesn't seem to be much of a wow to the gospel anymore. A couple of months ago, my wife called me on Friday afternoon at about 2 p.m. I answered the phone, and she says, there's a snake in the garage. And I had just killed one a few days before with a paint can, a little baby one. It was awesome. And she said, and, and I said, well, there's one in there. And I said, I just left it in there. And she goes, no, there's a snake in the garage. I walked outside in the garage and heard something tip over. I looked at it. It looked at me. We both went in the opposite direction. You need to come home and you need to kill it. And so I said, all right, I'll be there as soon as I can. Don't let the garage door up because I want to make sure that it's dead and killed. So I get home and I pull into my driveway and I get out and I look for anything that I could weaponize in this eternal ancient struggle between man and serpent. And I saw my uh, St. Louis Cardinals World Series commemorative baseball bat. So I grabbed that and I opened the garage door and I was ready. Didn't see anything. And so then I start looking. I'm like, it's probably hiding. So I look underneath the mower. I look under everything that I possibly could and I don't see it. And about that time, Alyssa and Asher walk around. She kind of peeks around and she says, did you find it? And I said, no. I said, I can't see it. And right as I said that, I realized where it was. I look over into the corner where I have all my potting soil and fertilizer and all my lawn stuff. And there's a piece of cardboard that was laying, leaning up against it. And I thought, that's where it's at. And so I like, so I go over and I pull it away. And sure enough, there is a four foot snake that just took a look right at me and just backed up ready to strike. So I just put that back. I screamed. I walked away. <laughs> and so now my phobia is kicking in. And I'm like, I'm just getting down like this. I kid you not. I'm like, okay, here we go. So I employed every single thing I could find. I saw a brick 
and I thought, this is it. I took that brick, and I threw it as hard as I possibly could onto that snake. Did it kill it? Of course not. This is robo-snake. And so that thing just curled back in between the bags, and so I couldn't really get the bags and pull it out. I had to slowly kind of move stuff around, and every time I moved it, it would crawl back even further behind my fridge and all that. An hour goes by. I employed every single piece of lawn care equipment that I own to kill it, and I finally dealt a death blow to it, or at least a blow where I could drag it out into the driveway and take about 50 blows to the head with it, and it was dead. And I drug it out into the alley, victorious. And then, later that night, as I was slowly getting over my PTSD, I was cooking dinner. And Asher likes to sit at the bar whenever we make dinner. And I'm just, uh, you know, getting everything together. And all of a sudden, I don't know where he goes, snake? Boom. Wow. I was like, son, please, go on. But he kept, he kept saying it. I could, he would go, snake, boom, wow. <laughs> and he said it for the next day, too, and he kept saying it. And then, in the sweetest way, it hit me. What a perfect two-year-old expression of the gospel. The cross of Jesus and his resurrection. Snake, boom, wow. The end of all things, whenever Satan gathers all of his forces before Jesus and his holy ones, and Jesus just walks right up into them as though they're nothing, like ants on a sidewalk, grabs Satan and drags them into the lake of fire. And all the saints rejoice. Snake, boom, wow. We don't really live with a sense of wow anymore. We don't really live with a sense of cosmic victory that we participate in, a sense of divine purpose. And if there's no wow, then we probably start to doubt that there was even a boom in the first place. And then we just feel like we're left with a snake. And the story of Acts tells you a different story. And we have done no heavy lifting in the book of Acts if we end it without any sense of awe in the victory of Christ and the mission that he has called us to. Because it invites us to realize the people of power that we're called to be. To reimagine the power that can flow out of a community that is devoted to the mission and purposes of Christ that cannot be stopped by anything. And we have seen God's power move in our time and in our place in India. But I think maybe Jesus wants more of us. What if the same thing would happen in Rockwall? Because the story of Acts isn't just back then, it's also what could be now. It's a story that says this is the Spirit of God. It's the same Spirit with the same mission and the same purpose, looking for a people that will devote themselves to that in their time and their place. And so the question for us becomes, how do we become a people of power in our time and our place? What does it look like to be a people of power in the suburbs? And I think this passage is really helpful in that regard. I think there's two ways that we can gather from this passage of how we do become a people of power. The first is that we learn to trust in God's sovereignty instead of always trying to escape. Last week, I'm going to piggyback off of what we talked about as we consider God's sovereignty once again. But last week, it was, and really this passage is just a continuation of the shipwreck story. Last week, it was considering God's sovereignty in light of suffering. And today, we'll consider God's sovereignty in light of our circumstances. And it is no great mystery to say that when life doesn't go how we want and we are met with unexpected circumstances, we feel as though God has left the building. God feels distant in these moments when things aren't going how we want and we want things to change and we feel marooned. 
We feel marooned on the island of difficult parenting. We feel marooned on the island of a frustrating marriage. We feel marooned on the island of dissatisfaction with our career. Disappointment with what life had become. Disappointment with how we wish things could have been different. And naturally, whenever we feel that way, that sense of feeling marooned, we try and change it. Just like Ryan said in the confession this morning, we try and fix it. We try to go about it in a way that removes that from being an issue and remedy the circumstances. But quite honestly, it's not that simple, is it? Because usually the things that make you begin to ask God, where are you, are the things that aren't easily fixed. They're hard. And then that just seems to only enhance and compound our feelings of discontent and alienation from God. And then what happens? When we face those hard circumstances, we try to balance that out with something else. Just to have a moment's peace or a moment's solitude where we don't have to think about those things. We don't have to think about life as it is. We can just escape and jump out of the moment and hit the eject button. And so maybe... We hurry up and put our kids to bed so that we have time for one more episode that night. Or we find ourselves in every uncomfortable situation or a moment where we have to wait or after a long day we check our phone at every stoplight just in case something really cool happened since the last stoplight. Or we feel like we don't want anyone to ever ask us anything serious and so we always try and control every conversation. Or we're always making jokes to keep everyone at arm's length. And we're always trying to escape. So let me ask you this. If you really thought about it on an average day, how much of your time is actually spent trying to escape the moment that you're in? And thanks to our spiritual friends at Apple, there's a fantastic new way to help you understand that. They recently released the iOS 12 operating system for the iPhone. And they have this wonderful new little app called Screen Time, that measures how much time you spend on your phone. It tells you the breakdown of the time you spend on each of your apps. It tells you how much time total you spent on it per day and per week. And it tells you how many times you actually pick up your phone. And I turned it on this week, just kind of curious about it, and the data on my phone is irrelevant to the sermon. But uh, as I looked at it, it made me begin to, to think, actually, you know what? Earlier, just before the uh, children's lesson, I just got a notification that told me the exact average per day that I spent on my phone last week. And so it was an hour and a half. So if I ever tell you I don't have time, you can call my bluff. Because I do. It's just a choice of how I want to spend it. And same with you. And I got to think as I looked at my phone is, you know, I wonder if they, it would be neat if there was an app that could measure how many times a day your thoughts drifted to Christ. I wonder if there's an app that would, you know, tally up how many times a day you asked for help. You turned to Jesus and asked him to give you strength. How many times you prayed. How many times you thought about Christ's promises in the scriptures. Which is an issue for people that profess God's sovereignty. And it should really challenge us when we try to escape every moment. Why? Because we believe that God is in every moment of every day. He writes your sunny days. He writes your shipwrecks. He knows all the things that you wish could be different. Nothing happens apart from his hand. There are no detours. He's never scratching his head. He knows all your struggles. He knows all the things that make you feel uncomfortable. He knows every time you want to get out of the moment and escape, all the things you want to avoid. He knows all the things that you wish life would have been. He knows all the things that he wish life could be. He knows every single detail, and yet there you are in that moment. Why? Because he puts you there.
because he is sovereign. Which means that if we're constantly trying to escape the moment we're in all the time, and yet there's that lingering question we ask, God, where are you? Then that profession of God's sovereignty throws the question back on you. Because in it, God asks, no, where are you? Where are you? You're the one jumping ship every opportunity you get. I am always here. I am always at work. I am in every single moment of every single day. Where are you? I have a purpose in every single circumstance. I am sovereign, and I am with you. And when we consider the Apostle Paul in this passage, he has learned to trust in God's sovereign hand in his circumstances. He isn't crying on the beach. He hasn't checked out, sitting on a log while he's watching everyone else work. Nor is he trying to escape. We find him in verse 3, building a fire, getting settled in to this new home that God gave him. And if we are to be a people of power, we need to learn to settle in in every moment and trust that God is with us in writing our circumstances with purpose, even the mundane ones, even the ones that feel cold and wet. Because God is not in the what could be's or the what could have been's. He is in every moment. And learning to trust in God's sovereignty beyond just a mere profession means that you begin to say this, God, you have orchestrated in my life in such a way that I am right here in this moment, and yet I want to get out. But what are you doing? What ways are you at work in my life? What are your purposes? What do you want to change in me? What do you want to accomplish in my life? How do you want to change me and grow me into a new person? What are your purposes for me? And to ask those questions is when we begin to become a people of power, an Acts kind of people. Because in that, those are the questions that show that we are ready to get on God's agenda, which he promises to accomplish instead of wondering and asking why he isn't on ours. These are the questions that turn your heart to a God whose desire is to renew, restore, heal, mend, transform, encourage, and empower. And what he decides shall come to pass. Now you're getting ready for true power to break into your life. And when you begin to trust in God's sovereignty in that way, you begin to become a person that can see beyond circumstances. Or even when you're bit by a snake, you can actually see that it's a sign of his presence and his power and his purpose in your life. And the alternative is that you just live like the Malteans. They see Paul struck by the snake and they believe he's a murderer. And then five minutes later, they think that he is a god when nothing happens. And when we don't, when we don't live as those who trust in God's sovereignty, that he has purpose, in the big things and the small things, the good circumstances and the bad, then inevitably when the circumstances don't go your way, you're going to live life like the Maltians because when God actually shows up, you'll just think it's caused by something else. To be a people of power is to trust in God's sovereignty in every moment and to trust that they are all written with purpose. The person of power says, Christ, what are you doing in me? Even when I can't see it for myself. And secondly, to be a people of power in the suburbs, we need to recognize that the gospel is for nice people. And on Malta, Paul is surrounded by nice people. 
If you look at the way they received these 276 people that were shipwrecked, what's it say? Luke says that they showed us no small kindness. He actually goes out of his way to say they were genuinely kind and hospitable people. The name Malta means refuge. It must have gotten its name from the people that were there. And Paul is surrounded by nice people on Malta. But notice he doesn't sit back and take a vacation while he's on the island. He gets to work because he knows the gospel is for nice people too. And he trusts that if Christ is with him, then he can trust that Christ always has purposes in every circumstance that he finds himself. And this is a good passage for us to consider for us because we live in the suburbs. And the suburbs are filled with nice people, kind people, sweet people, people that are hospitable, have a sense of community, support good causes. Most everybody has a church they go to. They'll open the door for you if they get there first with a nice hello. Sweet people, people that are kind and lovely. And if we're not careful, in the end, you know, we live next to these people, we work with these people, we see these people at local events where everything on the outside seems just fine. And so we can easily let ourselves off the hook and think, you know, how could I convince them that they need anything, especially Jesus? It doesn't seem like they need anything. It seems like everything is just fine. They're so sweet. They're so nice. They're a joy to be around. I don't really want to talk about Jesus dying on the cross for the wicked or living a sacrificial life for the poor and the needy in India or a life of joy that comes from obedience to Christ and picking up your cross and following him. Those things don't seem to apply. And if we're not careful, we just end up making the mistake of confusing Southern kindness with Christianity. And when that happens, we have to admit, do we not minimize the gospel itself? And we treat the eternal command of Christ to extend his kingdom and make disciples of all nations. And we treat it as though it stops applying once you cross the county line into Rockwall. But nice doesn't mean happy. Nice doesn't mean a good marriage. Nice doesn't mean they aren't paralyzed with anxiety or gripped by addiction. That smile on their face doesn't mean everything is not falling apart, like their marriage, maybe their finances, or they are just trying to stay afloat. Nice doesn't mean any of those things. And we encounter people all the time on a daily basis that can be just as lost as the Malteans, that even though for all of their genuine kindness, they don't know a murderer from a god. And if we want to be a people of power and devote ourselves to God's mission in our time and in our place, then I think we need to learn how to evangelize to nice people. So how do we do that? Well, what does Paul do in this passage? He finds their need. If you look at verses 7 and 8, he's invited to stay at the home of the chief man of the island named Publius. And while he's there, Paul learns that his father is sick with dysentery, which was an incredibly painful infection of the bowel that could last for years and caused great suffering just before someone died. And when Paul hears of it, he gets up and he goes to visit Publius' father. He prays for him, and he heals him. And after this, Paul spends his time in ministry on that island, healing the rest of the people that had diseases that came to him, wanting something more than the disease and suffering that they were experiencing. And we can easily look at that and say, you know, that's just another healing in Acts. That's pretty incredible. But what else is happening? What does Paul see underneath the surface of all of this kindness all of these warm smiles. 
What needs are there underneath the surface of these sweet people? Well, in these healings, gosh, what about everything else that he affects? The other needs that are there besides just the disease, what about the fact that he's meeting the needs of parents that have slowly watched their child suffer and slowly die, and they're perhaps going bankrupt because they're trying to find something to heal them? And finally, something does. Or maybe the fact that you know, there's a wife that's worried about her husband dying and his impending death because he too is sick. And she's wondering how she is going to provide for her family. Or maybe a son that's losing a brother and a father and he's worried about how he's going to have to take care of his extended family now. People that worry about the same things that you do. People that worry about their family members, situations they can't do anything about, about their finances that live with suffering and hurt and longings. Does not Paul meet them in each of those needs? And for all of this island's kindness, it could do nothing about their greatest needs. But when they were healed, they understood what that snake bite represented. They were introduced to the power of Christ and his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And they become a wow kind of people. Because they respond by giving Paul and Luke whatever they needed for their journey. And out of that awe and gratitude... For the victory of Christ, they participated in it by supporting their mission and in the purposes of God. And they gave themselves to the events that would change the world when they sent Paul to Rome. Evangelism in our context and embracing God's purposes in our community requires that we look beneath the surface and minister to the needs that are absolutely 100% there. People all around you are hurting, desperate, afraid, numb, confused, and all that's covered up with a smile. And yet, when we seek to find the needs of those around us, do we not become a people of power? Because now we're getting on God's agenda to make disciples to all nations, even ones that are really, really nice. If we could connect these two points as we close, how do we connect these two ideas this morning? Well, none of this would have happened on Malta if Paul had spent all of his time and energy trying to figure out how to get off the island. When you learn to trust in God's sovereignty in every moment of your life and begin to ask what he wants to change and accomplish in you in the good moments and the hard, you become an incredibly powerful presence to the world around you because now you've got a story to tell. And that's what evangelism is based on, is bearing witness to Christ in me. Now you have a story to tell of the ways that you've gotten on his agenda and the ways he's met your needs, brought new freedom, and brought new life. And make no mistake, that there are, this county is full of people that want new life. Because it's, and we have to recognize this challenge because it's very hard in our context to go out and meet the needs of others around us whenever we have no idea how Christ actually meets us in ours. If we are not willing to get on Christ's agenda in our life, then how can we go and convince someone to get on his agenda for them? And maybe all it takes is just a simple conversation, just like Paul did when he's just having dinner at Pulis' house. That's all it took for me, was a simple conversation that led me to Christ. In October of 2003, I stepped into Christian Fellowship Church and I sat on the back row. I had just transferred uh, from my sophomore, I was starting my sophomore year, and I just transferred to a new college. And I was a nice guy. I was a really nice guy. I wasn't involved in drugs or alcohol. I got my homework done, had a nice little job that I showed up 
on time for. I was great to work with, cracking jokes. He's a fun guy to be around. I was a nice guy. And when I sat down in the back of that church that day, I wasn't there because I wanted to be. I was actually there because I was tired of lying to my parents that I was going to church and I'd found one. So that's why I went. And the truth is that for all of my niceness inside, I was lonely, insecure, afraid, and I was very sad. And I didn't know why. And when I sat in the back of that church, I just wanted to check the box real quick, so I planned on leaving at what they called halftime, which is essentially our version of passing, or their version of passing of the peace. And so right when that happened, I'm just kind of planning my escape route as we can leave. And then all of a sudden, this guy named John Moe totally hijacks it. He says, hey, I'm John. What's your name? I said, I'm Zach. And he said, hey, great to meet you, Zach. Are you, are you new here? And I said, yeah, I'm, a, I'm just transferred here. I'm, I'm new. And he said, are you looking for a church? Yeah, totally looking for a church. Really great place you guys have here. It's really nice here. He said, great. He said, well, what are you going into? What's your major? And I said, mechanical engineering. And he said, yeah, me too. What classes do you have? And so I'm just like, go away, John. So I tell him all my classes. <laughs> tell him all my classes. He's like, fantastic. I've got four of those classes. That's really, really neat. Service is about to start. How about you come sit by me and my friends? And I'm like, John, I do not. Absolutely, John. I'd love to come sit next to you. So I go and I sit next to him. And we sit down. And I wanted to break out of the, before the sermon because back then I hated preaching. Did not want to sit through a sermon at all. And so at the end of it, John said, hey, can I get your number? Because me and a group of guys that were all in those classes together, we have a study group that we, that we uh, uh, get together and do homework in. I said, sure, here's my number. Didn't figure he'd call. Then later that afternoon, he texted me. and He said, hey, we're getting together on Tuesday at this study, this study group. You want to come? And I thought, you know what? I could use some free answers. Why not? So I showed up, and I met some of his friends. There's a guy named David Boyd. I got to know him, and he said, hey, tonight John and I are putting on just a friendly poker game at my place just off campus. Do you want to come? And I said, sure, why not? So I went, and I stayed till 4 in the morning. I met a guy named Aaron Williams, and they were really kind to me. They said, you want to get together tomorrow? I said, sure. I found myself at that house every day for the next two years. And they talked to me about Jesus. They talked to me about God's sovereignty. They talked to me about grace. All these things I thought I knew, but I didn't. And they didn't let me go whenever I pushed back. They didn't let me go whenever it got down into an argument and I got heated and they stayed calm. They didn't let me go and they continued to pursue me. And I remembered one day I walked from their house to my dorm. And as I was leaving, I wish I could make you feel right now what I felt in that moment. But I remember the thought came to me. It said, if I if this is what it means to have, to have a friend. I have never had a friend my entire life. And out of that community, I came to understand who Christ was. And I made him my own. And I thought, I never knew a life like this was possible. And I texted him, both all three of those guys on Friday, and I said, gentlemen, I, said, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I owe you my conversion. And I thank you for loving me pursuing a nice guy because you believe that the gospel was for me. And I stand in front of you this morning because they didn't let a nice guy go. They wanted him to meet Jesus, and he did. What would our church look like in a year from now if we devoted ourselves to not trying to escape from every moment but began to find God's purposes in every moment and trusted and believed that he is sovereign over all things?
And what would we look like in a year from now if we went out into our community, into our neighbors and coworkers, and we didn't just become satisfied with their smile, but we tried to pursue their needs because we know that Christ wants them. I think that in a year from now, it would be extraordinary. I think we would have all sorts of stories in this church that you could easily lump all of them together and describe and summarize with simply snake, boom, wow. Let's pray. Christ our Lord, we often take your victory and make it negotiable or something that's uncertain. We don't live as a people that have a sense of your power at work within us. Would you forgive us? Would you meet us in our need this morning at this table? Would you invite us deeper into your purposes in our lives and in the lives of those around us? We ask that you'd strengthen us at this table for that work. And it's only by your grace that we can do this. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.